couple of weeks ago, um, when we um, stopped for a moment to look uh, at the whole of the Gospel of John and, and how it fits together and, and what its big message is, um, we touched on the question, what is enough evidence? Jesus makes extraordinary, extraordinary claims in John's Gospel. What's enough evidence that those claims are true? And uh, we mentioned, if you were here, that uh, Bertrand Russell, who was a, a, an atheist, was once asked, an atheist philosopher, was once asked, if you die and, and, you, and you find actually that you were wrong and you're face to face with God, what would you say to God? And Russell said, I would tell God, you didn't give us enough evidence. Now actually, the Bible doesn't, just doesn't bother to give evidence for the existence of God. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't try, at least, to prove the existence of God. All, all the Bible writers seem to, seem to say that, that actually people, deep down, have a deep instinct that God does exist. Let me give you two bits of Oxford evidence for, uh, for that, um, just to try and support that, because I think that, that is uh, shown to be true again and again. Um, in Oxford and uh, elsewhere, but Oxford was the centre of it 50 years ago, there was a form of philosophy which was very aggressively atheist, led by a man called uh, A.J. Eyre. And he felt that you could derive um, morals and the way that you could live um, in an entirely atheist world. Very interestingly, philosophy, by and large has moved on from that. He's seen as being a sort of slight, um, uh, slightly quaint historic figure in many philosophical circles that people increasingly are sceptical. That you can really understand the world without something that's transcendent. Or, I'll give you another example. Um, uh, Richard Dawkins, another good Oxford man, who loves to uh, propound his, uh, his atheism, there's growing evidence that different people are picking up on that, that, that Richard Dawkins is actually um, creating the opposite effect than he would like to. What he's done is he's tied his atheism very strongly to a belief in Charles Darwin's evolution. But what we're seeing in this country is a growing scepticism about Darwin, Darwinian evolution. Many people suggest that's in, in part because people believe Dawkins that Darwinian evolution equals atheism, which I don't, by the way. But they think, I don't want to be an atheist. It must be that Darwinian evolution is wrong. It seems somehow... In, in people's hearts and in people's minds, overall, there is this instinctive um, belief in God that is impossible to eradicate. Communist Russia, Pol Pot's Cambodia, none of those could eradicate belief in God. And the Bible, so the Bible doesn't bother to um, uh, deal with that. It just begins, in the beginning, God and goes on to describe what God has done. 
What it does do, though, and what John is trying to do, is give us evidence for something slightly different. John is giving us evidence for who Jesus is. And he's making an extraordinary claim. Jesus, he says, in, in some sense, is God. Or let's put it another way. God, whom so many people believe in, looks like Jesus. John's not trying to, to prove the existence of God then. He's trying to show us what God is like and why Jesus is so important to that. And that, it seems to me, is really, really important. Not only that truth, but that we know that we have reasonable evidence to believe those things. Most people here are Christians, and yet Christians so often live with nagging doubts. Can I really believe these extraordinary claims that Jesus makes? Well, John, in part, is wanting to deal with those doubts. If you were here a a couple of weeks ago, we saw saw that the, the big structure of John's Gospel is that John, John, John tells us, gives us seven signs, one after the other, of uh, who Jesus is. Miracles that Jesus did, um, which are signs that point to him. Seven is a really important number for John. It's the number of completeness. So here is a complete set of signs for who Jesus is that John is trying to set out. And we've got in chapters 7 and 8 to an important point because he's given us four of those signs. In other words, the the fourth sign, which is Jesus um, uh, feeding the 5,000, that uh, famous story, the fourth sign is the middle one. And then it stops, John's Gospel stops for a minute in chapters 7 and 8 and uh, reflects on what we have learned so far. Last week we saw in chapter 7, um, we saw that actually people are, are not fully persuaded yet. And a large proportion of them are confused. Some are starting to see with clarity who Jesus is, and they hate him. Indeed, they start to plan to kill him, because he completely overturns their world. And just a few are starting to come to worship him. Okay, So there's lots of confusion in chapter 7. But in chapter 8, we move on to this question. Okay, Jesus, you've started to tell us who you are, and you've started to reshape even our, our, our understanding of who God is. What's your evidence? What is evidence enough for that? And John's answer... We need to, uh, um, uh, um, to see John's answer. We first of all need to look at something that we glanced at um, two, two weeks ago, but we need to see a little bit more clearly. John um, not only has seven signs, he has sevens of, of all kinds of things in his gospel. He has carefully structured his, uh, uh, his gospel, and uh, of a few things, he has 14. And he has 14, he uses the word testimony, this, this important word about, uh, about warranted belief. A testimony, he uses it 14 times. And he uses it in a specific pattern. Um, 
Again, we saw two weeks ago, John begins with a prologue, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and so on. And the word testimony appears once there. Then uh, um, there is a week leading up to and including the first miracle, the first sign. Um, We saw that from John chapter 1 verse 19 to 2 verse 11. And the word testimony pops up once there. Jumping to the end for uh, a minute, there's also a final week leading up to the final great sign, which is going to be Jesus' death on the cross and his his resurrection. And lo and behold, the word testimony turns up once there. And uh, then to match the prologue, there is a little epilogue in chapter 21. um, And lo and behold, testimony turns up once there. We've got four. Where are the other ten? Well, the other ten actually appear in the big central section um, uh, of John's Gospel, again, in a symmetrical pattern. John chapter 3, chapter 5, and chapter 8. In chapter 3, he's dealing with uh, Nicodemus. We saw that uh, before Christmas. Um, uh, and chapter 5, we've, we've looked at before, but we will look at it again. Because there is a progression in what Jesus is teaching us about testimony. Testimony to him. Let me show you it. In chapter 1... It is John the Baptist's testimony to him. Both those first uh, incidents, the prologue and the introductory week, it is about John the Baptist, some other person's testimony to him. In chapter 3, it is Jesus' testimony about himself. And then chapter 5 gets really interesting, and we want to look at that before we get to chapter 8. So turn with me to chapter 5, page 103. Six, eight, and we will uh, we'll see these four instances of the word testimony from verse um, uh, thirty-one onwards. First of all, Jesus says, "If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true." Now he's drawing there on Old Testament teaching that said you've got to have two witnesses to, for anything to be, uh, to be um, considered as true. So he's saying, if I'm the only one, if, if it's just me testifying, then you have no basis to believe me. I might be just one isolated loony, for all you know. Verse 32, though, he goes on, But there is another who testifies in my favour. And I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent John, sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. That's John the Baptist who was being talked about uh, at the beginning. So he's saying, no, there's two. There's me testifying about myself, and there's this chap, John the Baptist, who from the beginning has saying, listen to Jesus, He's he's the Son of God. But then look at verse 34. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. Now that's really, really important, what what he's saying. He's saying that 
Human testimony, in the end, is not valid, ultimately valid. He mentions it, it is useful. Indeed, many people have come to believe in Jesus as a result of the testimony of other people. But he's saying, for me, it's not ultimately valid. In fact, he's, he's anticipating an argument that, a, that an atheist philosopher called David Hume came up with in the 18th century in a, a book, An Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, where Hume said this. He said, look, if someone claims that there's a miracle and they testify about it, then the chances, miracles are such weird things, that the chances of their testimony being false and the miracle not being true is always going to outweigh the chance of the miracle being true and their, uh, uh, um, uh, and, uh, their testimony being true. You can never have testimony which will be strong enough to for us to reasonably believe in a miracle because miracles are such extraordinary things. So, so, so said Hume, when you look back at Jesus, yes, there's testimony, but the chances are always going to be on the side of those people being deceived and making a mistake than them telling the truth. And Jesus says, in a sense, I agree with that. You know, John the Baptist's testimony, yeah, it has some value, but not ultimate value. Look at how he continues, verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You see, he says, actually, yeah, you could say there's two witnesses, me and John the Baptist, but you could say that you could see it in a different way. You could say there's two witnesses, me and God the Father. And that is far more powerful, far more weighty testimony, he says, than just human witnesses. His, um, his testimony, you see, does not ultimately rely on those human witnesses, valid and useful though they are. His testimony somehow relies on himself and God personally authenticating that to people. And that is weightier than any human testimony. So we're ready to come to chapter 8 because now we will understand what's being talked about and we can start to see it in chapter 8. Did you notice? Verse 18, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness, your testimony is not valid. We're on the same, we're in the same field then. This is, he's a testimony, it is a testimony on his own Therefore, it can't be valid. That's what Old Testament law says. But now Jesus says something new. He says, 
verse 14, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. His testimony is valid, he says. Indeed, him standing alone and seeking simply the personal authentication from God is the most powerful testimony that he can have. Because, he says again, his testimony is twofold. In your own law, verse 17, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. How does God who sent him authenticate his ministry as another witness? He does it through a direct witness to the heart of people coming to faith. That's what the Bible says. We have a written record of Jesus historically standing up and saying, here I am, this is who I, who, who I am, and, says Jesus, we have a God who authenticates that in human hearts. What David Hume said was, you can never ever believe anything miraculous in in, in, uh, in history because the chances are it will always not happen and Jesus is saying yeah, that in one sense David Hume you're right if you define the question saying that there is no possibility of God intervening but if there is a God who actually can speak into human hearts if there is a God who can open eyes if there is a God who can take the, the record of Jesus' life and say deep in human hearts that is true then you can come to a uh, what, 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 what one philosopher describes as a warranted Christian belief a, an appropriate Christian belief a Christian belief that is on firm foundations That is really, really important. The Bible attests to it again and again and again. I don't know whether you remember the story of, of Simon Peter getting asked in Matthew's Gospel who, uh, by Jesus, who he thinks Jesus is. And Jesus says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. The way that people come to believe in Jesus is not ultimately by a purely human process of believing the evidence. Though evidence there is, it is through divine intervention in human hearts. It is not irrational. It's absolutely rational, says Jesus. I mentioned John the Baptist and lots of other testimonies he mentions to show that it's rational. But that rationalism is not enough. God has to speak in human hearts. The uh, theologian and philosopher Jonathan Edwards 
described it as a divine and supernatural heart imparted immediately to uh, the, the soul by the Spirit of God. He loved to use these long phrases, but it captures it. Divine and supernatural light. If you are a believer here, if you've come to believe in Jesus, that is a supernatural event. It is a work of God in your hearts. And you don't need to be embarrassed about that. And if you've not yet come to see who Jesus really is, then actually though you can build up evidence and you can show uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to believe who Jesus is, ultimately you will not be persuaded deep in your heart until God works. And the people around Jesus at that time do not believe. Verse 14, you have no idea where I've come from, says Jesus. Verse 15, you judge only by human standards. Verse 19, you don't know me or my father. Verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. Verse 25, he says, they say, who are you? Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. It is like it is, it is an open secret. He's been telling them plainly again and again and again. And yet, unless God works in their lives, they cannot see it and they are asking the same questions at the end as they were at the beginning. What is enough evidence? That's what Jesus is, uh, and John, is uh, the question Jesus is, uh, John is answering. And he's saying, well, there's plenty of evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be. But ultimately, the testimony that has full weight is the testimony of God in our hearts. Just briefly then, we need to move on. We're not going to do the whole chapter, unfortunately. But we need to, uh, we need to look at two elements of that, uh, or two things that are said about that testimony in the rest of chapter 8. What um, testimony does Jesus provide? Well, first of all, um, he, he says of himself that he is the light of the world. Chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world, he says. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. It's the second of seven, I am the, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the shepherd, and, uh, and so on. And um, here, he draws attention to, to himself, perhaps um, describing himself in, with, with two dimensions. He is a light in the sense that he is, he is a beacon who, who draws people to himself. But he is also a light in that he illuminates the world around. He brings light to this world. C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because I see everything else by it. Jesus transforms our understanding of the world. He is the light of the world. Jesus draws people to himself. 
He is the light of the world. He is, he is the light for every culture. It's extraordinary if you, if you um, examine it, that the influence of Jesus, not just in one culture or two cultures, but throughout the world. You go to Africa, uh, sorry, to India, you, you ask people who, who uh, uh, one of their most significant people is in history, soon they will come up with William Carey, a great Indian missionary, uh, a missionary to India, who not only influenced uh, literature, but was a powerful influence for social reform and so on. Or you go to Africa and um, uh, uh, dig around a bit, and you will find that, that the forces moderating the worst influences of colonialism were Christian missionaries. Or you, go, or you ask about Rwanda, and you find that actually, alongside the Hutus and the Tutsis, uh, do, do have a seat, brother. I'm speaking, I'm afraid, brother, but uh, I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. I need to get a Ken, would you like to have a chat with the... That's that's fine, but but we can't do it in the middle of what we're doing. So you go to India, you will find Christianity has been a a, a massive influence. You go to Africa, and you will find, for instance, in the massacres of of, uh, Rwanda, they said there were Tutsis and there were Hutus, and... uh, there was a third group, the Christians, who were neither, who were both Hutu and Tutsi, and yet didn't, uh, uh, didn't get involved in the killing. Or you go to, go to Latin America and you, you, you ask about the, the social influences in Latin America, and you will find Christians have been at the forefront of reforms in the favelas, the poor, uh, the poor localities. You will find Christians today are at the forefront of of trying to prevent um, uh, 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 land-grabbing efforts from, uh, uh, from people's uh, traditional homes. You go to China and you will find that Christians are acknowledged as being perhaps one of the most important forces in China today with as many Christians as belong to the Communist Party and um, senior people saying it is only Christianity which will stop Chinese youth from from uh, falling into uh, um, massive immorality. Jesus has proved himself again and again as the light of the world. He, is, he, he, he brings light to culture after culture after culture. And you go to Britain. And uh, you find actually David Cameron standing up in Oxford and uh, wanting to affirm that this is a Christian country because politicians increasingly are recognising that Christianity has a massive positive social influence. You talk actually to people like um, my friend there who I see reasonably often on the, uh, on the streets of Oxford and you will find that they go to the churches. All of them. Uh, Because they know, despite uh, uh, the fact that there are moments when they can't come in. And they know that too. They know that they will get treated in a different way. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus transforms this world. 
And he's done that in culture after culture after culture. And then Jesus says something very interesting in John 8, verse 28. He says... His character is supremely revealed in the cross. What he's doing here in verse 28, let's, uh, let's, uh, uh, let's read it before we try and understand it. What he's doing, uh, what John is doing actually as he, as he records this at this point is really quite significant. Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. There is a, an, interesting, uh, an interesting phraseology that I am he. It's used by God of himself alone in the Old Testament. But it's used of, by, uh, it's on Jesus' lips seven times in John's Gospel. And that is the central one of the seven, the fourth time that Jesus says it. But that phrase lifted up as well is significant. It occurs three times in John's Gospel. Once when Jesus um, says, uh, 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 just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That's in John chapter 3, verse 14. The third time is in John 12. When I am lifted up, he says, from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. There it's made very clear that his phrase to be lifted up is about being lifted up to die on the cross. But here it's the central one of those three events. So John has shaped then his gospel around this statement. When I am lifted up, you will know that I am he. Or you will know that I am God. When Jesus is lifted up, somehow on the cross, he will reveal himself supremely to be God. And he will reveal God as like him on the cross. Why? Well, there are so many paradoxes on the cross. There God is revealed as the God who judges, but the God who also, in Jesus, takes the judgment and the punishment. There God is revealed as the God who must separate himself from sin, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is far off. But he is also, in Jesus, the God who actually takes our sin on himself. He is the God who is absolutely in control of events. That is very clear as he heads towards the cross. But how does he control those events? He controls those events by becoming entirely powerless. Nailed to a cross. He reveals a God who hates sin, but loves us so much that he will pay for our sin.
when he is lifted up, he shows us what God is like. He shows himself to be God the Son. Now, if you've come to believe that, I want you to know that it's first a miracle of God and it is also the most precious thing that could be. It is worth giving everything in your life for. It is worth it is worth sacrificing everything that you have and are to serve that God. And if you've not yet become persuaded, then by all means, examine the evidence. Look at the evidence. It's valuable. It is important. But more than anything else, ask God to open your eyes. Jesus gives enough evidence of who he is. But God needs to open our eyes to see it. Kitty's going to leave us.